Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It seems as if every aspect of our political life plays out through the prism of the deep partisan divide that remains six months after the end of the Trump administration. This week, the House of Representatives formed a select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol, one month after Senate Republicans blocked an effort to form an independent bipartisan commission. Most members of the dominant Trump faction of the Republican Party, especially those whose conduct might be put under the microscope, fought creation of the committee. Now they'll have to decide whether to participate in earnest or perhaps, as with the impeachments, to try to disparage the investigation as a partisan witch hunt. Probably the most important legislative priority in the country, the effort to secure full voting rights for all Americans, is caught up in the web of state efforts to pass restrictive voting measures, most recently in Texas, and federal court decisions, most recently in the Supreme Court last week, that make it harder for Congress to push back. Whether there is any strong federal response at all may turn on the willingness of one senator to revisit the filibuster. A lawsuit by the former president against the big tech companies that have banned him looked dead on arrival under current law, but the response exposed discomfort on both sides of the aisle for very different reasons about the tremendous power exercised in this country today by the biggest internet companies. And in a luminous story having nothing at all to do with the persistent, bitter, and deepening partisan divide, 14-year-old Zalila Avant-Garde became the first African-American to win the National Spelling Bee, coolly knocking down Mireya to take the crown. That's all we'll have on that happy event. But to discuss the rest of the week's stories, we have a fantastic group of guests. And they are... Natasha Bertrand, the White House reporter for CNN covering national security and a political analyst for MSNBC. She until recently was the national security correspondent at Politico. We have had the good fortune to welcome her repeatedly when she was there, and we are hoping she can stay a regular on Talking Feds from her new higher perch. Natasha, so great to have you back on Talking Feds in your new role at CNN, where you've been killing it, by the way. Thank you for having me. Bill Crystal, founder of Defending Democracy Together, an organization dedicated to advancing America's liberal democratic norms, principles, and institutions, as well as host of the highly regarded video series and podcast, Conversations with Bill Crystal. His extensive public policy experience includes serving in senior positions in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations and founding and editing the influential conservative magazine, Weekly Standard. Bill, Thanks so much. It's always a great discussion when you return to Talking Feds. Great to be with you, Harry, and with everyone else. And finally, we are thrilled to welcome Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, who has been in the House since 1995, representing California's 19th District, which encompasses much of Silicon Valley. She's the chair of the Committee on House Administration and serves as well on the House Judiciary Committee. The Congresswoman was a House manager for the second impeachment of President Trump. And just this week, she was appointed by Speaker Pelosi to the Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. 
Congresswoman Lofgren, we are thrilled to welcome you for the first time to Talking Feds. Thanks for inviting me. Let's jump in with the January 6th commission. So one month after Senate, Republicans blocked an effort to create an independent bipartisan commission to investigate the events of January 6th. The House this week passed legislation along nearly straight party lines to establish a 13-member select committee. The speaker named eight committee members, including Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. Quite an honor and a call to national service, so kudos. As you put it when you were appointed, the American people deserve answers to these questions and plans to protect our institutions. So I know you've just been appointed. Do you have a vision now, Congresswoman, for what happens next and how it plays out? We're going to have our very first hearing the week we get back, a week after this, and we're going to hear directly from police officers who defended the Capitol. We're in the process of reviewing resumes so that we can hire staff. We've found our office space. It's a quick startup. I think our mission really is to find out what happened in some detail, the lead up, not just the day, but the days and months preceding it. We saw an unbelievable sight on that day, thousands and thousands of Americans who seemed to believe that they were doing their patriotic duty by attacking the police and invading the Capitol and disrupting the constitutional process. How did that happen? And how do we prevent that sort of thing from happening again? Who planned it? Who paid for it? How was it instigated? As you know, I'm chairing of the House Administration Committee. We had jurisdiction only on the facilities itself, oversight jurisdiction. And we have now had five hearings and we'll have several more on the police response and preparedness. That's important because we need to be better prepared and the management was clearly deficient. There's no question about that. But those deficiencies didn't cause the riot. We need to find out the causes and we need to take some preventive steps. Yeah, and and sticking with you. So I know there have been some findings by the inspector general about specifically what went awry at the police level. But as you say, it doesn't seem to be really the organic cause. Now, as you put it, some of it overlaps with at least big portions of the second impeachment inquiry. Is there a plan either to steer away or, if necessary, go right into those issues up to and including the potential role of the former president? I don't think I can tell you what the plan is right now. We have been in existence for about 10 days. We will have a work plan that involves following the facts and finding the truth wherever that leads us. Fair enough. Let's think for a moment about the position of Kevin McCarthy now. He opposed the committee, but I think Pelosi's announcement puts him in something of a box. So your thoughts about his likely strategy, given the gravity of the episode, can the Republicans afford to use the sort of same playbook of contempt and generally making things a circus as they did in the impeachments? I don't know what what Kevin's going to do. We have a quorum now whether or not he appoints anyone, and we are proceeding. When he appoints someone who is suitable, as you know, the speaker actually makes the appointments. And if he were to appoint someone who was wholly unsuitable, such as Marjorie Taylor Greene, I doubt very much if the speaker would agree to that. 
Right. She can veto. Is that right? Correct. And I'm sure she will use that power sparingly, but there are a good taste limits on what can occur here that she is well aware of. Natasha, Bill, any any thoughts about McCarthy's position of the Republicans here in general? Yeah, so there was actually a lot of good reporting on this done by my colleague Mel Zanona, who covers the Hill. And she had reported that there was a lot of internal debate inside the House GOP about whether they should appoint members to the committee or whether they should just skip it altogether so that they could then paint the entire select committee as partisan and as just a witch hunt um, going after the former president, going after uh, Republican members of Congress. But they ultimately decided that the best way to actually have an influence on the committee is to include certain Republican members so that they could then paint a counter narrative and defend their own members, who some of whom are believed to have egged on the protesters here, and also obviously prevent this from ensnaring the former president himself. So it's all but certain at this point that McCarthy is probably going to tap some uh, of Trump's allies for the five Republican spots on the committee. But Again, like if this were to turn to a circus, then that really wouldn't serve anyone well. And so he's facing pressure to pick some more pragmatic members as well who can bring some credibility to their side of the debate so that it's not you know, as easy for Democrats to say that they're not taking this seriously. So I think this has been a very carefully considered plan by the Republicans as to how to proceed with this, not that they're doing so necessarily in good faith to try to get to the bottom of what actually happened, um, but because they're trying to strategize as to essentially how to curtail the effort as much as possible. You know, I would say it would be a mistake to assume there'd be much good faith on the part of, certainly on the more Trumpy Republicans who are likely to end up on the committee, like Jim Jordan or Elise Stefanik, but even the more what I would regard as responsible Republicans who may not demagogue, but I don't know how much of an interest they, they did vote against the committee, except for Liz Cheney, who's on the committee and Adam Kinzinger. So having voted against the committee, that doesn't that tell you an awful lot? You know, they didn't think there should be such a select committee. So even the better ones aren't going to be very good. I don't know that it matters much. I don't think Kevin McCarthy, liberals all want to think that Kevin McCarthy is suffering terribly and he's in a terrible bind. I do not like what Kevin McCarthy's done for the last several years, believe me. But he doesn't think he's in a terrible bind. I mean, he thinks he has to maneuver between the crazy Trumpy wing of the party, the happy with Trump wing of the party, the reluctant wing of the party. But he thinks he's doing a pretty good job maneuvering. He's paid, they have paid no price. They have paid no price for what they have done. They were utterly irresponsible on impeachment the first time. Did they lose seats? They supported Trump. They supported his reelection. He mismanaged the pandemic. Hundreds of thousands of people died. They gained seats in the House. Totally irresponsible on second impeachment, totally irresponsible on the vote on the commission and then the committee. And, you know, they're even in the polling for 2022. Now, believe me, this could be short-sighted. I hope it is, frankly, and that they pay a price. But their attitude is not, oh, boy, this is difficult. Their attitude is anything from this is a a headache that we just have to avoid too many headlines about. Two, for some of them, we can galvanize our base and do fundraising off it. So I'm pessimistic about the Republicans, except for Liz Cheney. I would say just so Lofgren doesn't need my advice on what to do, but I do think it's very important to make this about November 3rd to January 6th. The riot was terrible and, and what happened, the insurrection itself was horrible and a dark day for America. But the phone call to Brad Raffensperger is a terrible thing. He literally is trying to overturn the results in a state. And then, of course, in Arizona as well, right? That's actually, in some ways, as serious as inciting people to 
go storm the Capitol and, and try to intimidate the members of Congress and cause terrible damage and destruction. I don't want to minimize the January 6th side of it. So, And the whole big lie begins before, in a way, but very seriously, the night of November 3rd. The one thing that I think the committee could really do that would be so helpful would be to give a sense of that two months and how unprecedented that is. That is never, we've had a lot of not so great presidents and irresponsible demagogues and all this, that has not happened in American history. And I think bringing home to people the magnitude of that effort, how bad, how irresponsible, how dangerous it was. And of course, because then, guess what? It didn't stop on January 6th and it hasn't stopped yet. And they're not stupid. It's not like Trump, I don't believe for a second, he thinks he's going to be put back in office in, in a month or something like that. He does think that he can get Republicans, he can dominate the Republican Party through this, and he doesn't think it's necessarily a loser for that party in 2022, and he thinks he can get state legislators to curtail voting and to legitimate election overturning. The degree to which this is a serious, ongoing threat to our democracy, not just a horrible moment in it, I think that's something where the committee could really play an important role. Yeah, and by the way, it's not simply the call to Raffensperger. Actually, Kevin McCarthy figures as a potentially important witness here, too, with the call he receives on the afternoon in which the president implies that he really knows about and is taking delight in the insurrection. Okay, so th there is this really critical imperative to get at a full account. Does that indicate a preference for public proceedings? I'm trying to compare this with the Kennedy Commission, the Kennedy Assassination Commission, or maybe 9-11, are we basically going to see witness after witness dominating legislative activity, probably up to the election, the, the midterms, or will much of the work be at the staff level, behind the scenes, and other than occasional reports, just issue the kind of huge tome that the 9-11 commission did. Any thoughts about what would be preferable given the goals of the committee for the country? This is a guess because we're just forming up. I'm not chairing the committee, but my guess is that there will be some of both. I think back, I was a staffer on the Nixon impeachment, and there was a lot of interviewing of witnesses privately, and then there was some public testimony by those witnesses. So there'll, there'll be some of both, yeah, is my best guess. And I do think it's important that the public have a chance to see what we're finding out in real time as we're finding it out. And as Mr. Crystal has said, it's not just the day, it's what led up to the day and really what appears to be a very concerted and coordinated attack to fundamentally alter our system of government from a democratically elected republic. And that's pretty serious. And unprecedented. One more quick political question, and then I'd, I'd like to have a, a broad sort of closer. But Liz Cheney, I wonder if anyone has thoughts about her position. McCarthy implies she's the ultimate turncoat. Maybe she's closer to Pelosi than us. And conventional wisdom has been that she showed great courage and integrity and continues to, but has probably torpedoed her career. There's got to be some future for some anti-Trump Republicans. And I can see a world in which she actually flourishes, depending on what happens down the line. What's your thought about the kind of position she's put herself in by standing up and speaking truth, as it were? I am not an expert on the Republican Party. <laughs> I will say this. She is a very conservative person. She and I do not share many policy views. 
but I take her at face value that she wants to find out, get to the bottom of this and stand up for the constitution. I think that's what she's doing. She made a decision that she could serve the country by going along as much as she had to moderate some of the things that were happening and to bracket the Trump era. Her vision was Trump is a parenthesis, very unpleasant one. The party she loses in November, the party comes out of it and you get back to two reasonably responsible parties. I think one reason she reacted so strongly is she saw that was wrong because of Trump's behavior after November 3rd, and then even more astonishingly because of her colleagues' acceptance and rationalization and legitimization of Trump's behavior. And so that's one reason she just decided, well, that is utterly unacceptable. And now I have to go into full bore. We need the full truth. And I can't tolerate this kind of acquiescence, which is why she hasn't just said we need the truth, but she also said she couldn't vote for Trump again. And I think she said she couldn't vote for Kevin McCarthy as speaker in 2020. Uh, she has crossed the Rubicon for sure. Yeah, so I, it's nice, Harry, that you think there's a future for people like that. In the <laughs> party. I think Liz and I are much less certain of that than, than, that's because we talk to more Republicans than you do. And I mean, honestly, everyone keeps thinking, well, finally, the fever is going to break. And you know what? I'm much less confident than it will. I wish I were confident that it would. The idea that she's closer to Nancy Pelosi is just so yes. ridiculous. Right. I mean, we had a quick tag up meeting the day of the appointments. In we went into the speaker's office. She'd never been in that office before. She didn't realize that Nancy has little bowls full of chocolates because she's a chocoholic. They're not close at all. It's a crazy thing for Kevin to say. I was just going to say that many Democrats had privately hoped that Pelosi would appoint her because, again, in terms of optics, it's not exactly as the congresswoman was saying. It's not that they're close. It's just that it helps to mitigate that appearance of a, a partisan endeavor and make it seem more bipartisan and, and more like both sides of the aisle have buy-in on this. So it's not that they're suddenly best friends. It's not that they're suddenly Liz Cheney becoming a liberal or, or crossing the aisle in that sense, but it just helps further legitimize the probe. And it also makes Kevin McCarthy look hypocritical because he removed Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney was removed from her leadership position over her calling out Trump's role in the insurrection and, and Trump's role in perpetuating the big lie. But at the same time, you know, won't strip members of their committee assignments who are associating with white nationalists who are making comparisons to the Holocaust when it comes to vaccine distribution. There's just a clear double standard that I think is being highlighted here to their benefit by Nancy Pelosi in appointing her to this committee. It just shows that the, the two sides are fundamentally just opposed on this core idea of whether the insurrection posed a threat to democracy and whether it should be investigated. And I got to say, and I'm going back now to the first impeachment even before, if there's a false step that Pelosi has made in her overall stewardship from small to large decisions, I'm not aware of it. All right. Close out questions might be really hard. The Congresswoman has stressed you're just staffing up and maybe there'll be a, a hearing next week. But do you have a sense of what success would look like here and what disappointment would look like? Two years down the line, what would cause us to say mm, it just floundered and what would say that was a really important move for democracy? Well, I think a, a success would be to have a full picture of the actors and what they did leading up to January 6th, the efforts to overturn the election and to have the public broadly understand what happened and to have a renewed love of our democratic republic. And disappointments, anyone? If it gets mired in partisanship, or I, I see a Cheshire cat smile 
on Bill Crystal. I don't think the partisanship is going to matter. I think, yeah, finding out what happened. And for me, I, I very much agree that, yes, if it just comes and goes and no one thinks it was a big deal, ultimately it's a historical footnote, that's terrible. Look, what happened was terrible in the Capitol. We do know a lot about that, actually, and there's a lot of video footage and so forth. Who paid for some of the, for the rally and the connections of the White House to that is pretty interesting, and that would be nice to know more about. But for me, what Trump did that day, I've always thought that was a key aspect of the impeachment, actually, that it's one thing, whatever his direct responsibility for inciting the riot and the storming of the Capitol, we know he was president. We know he was in the White House. Any normal president, if you, the moment he heard about that, would have convened his National Security Council and the Homeland Security people, would have ordered that everything be done to obviously to deal with the situation, would have monitored it 24-7, would have insisted on reports every 10 minutes about what's happening, would have been on the phone with Speaker Pelosi and Leader McCarthy and the Senate leadership. And instead, uh, he seems to watch TV and enjoyed it and did have these random conversations, it appears, with Kevin McCarthy and maybe with others. And his chief of staff had some conversations. Some calls didn't get through. If he talked to Pence, maybe. I'm a little uncertain about that. Really knowing what Trump did in a sort of minute to minute way to the degree that that's going to be possible. And I understand not everyone's going to want to talk about that, but maybe some of them will. And what his senior staff did, what the Secretary of Defense did, what did Homeland Security, what Attorney General. I think that's pretty important as it really does give a sense of how it's one thing you could inadvertently, I don't think this is true, but say foolish stuff that might lead people to do things that are very bad. And that can be debated, I suppose. But he was president. And there can be no debate at all about what his responsibility should have been in those two or three or four hours. And therefore, knowing the degree to which he didn't exercise them, I think is a totally legitimate thing to inquire. The Benghazi Commission is, doesn't look good in retrospect. But the one thing that was legitimate, and which we did find out, incidentally, and which ended up being fairly exculpatory, I would say, is, well, what did President Obama do? What did Secretary Clinton do? What did the agency of Dave Petraeus or whoever was head of CIA do? How did they coordinate? They didn't do it great, but they tried, and they were on the phone, and they were up all night and so forth. And at least there was an effort to do what you're supposed to do if you're at a senior level of government. I think for, for me, the, the fact that Trump may have enjoyed what was happening and did nothing to organize the executive branch of the federal government to deal with the attack on the U.S. Capitol is really getting more granularity about that would be a very would be very helpful. And by the way, I couldn't agree more. And in general, the most, I would say, galling or frustrating aspect of the whole last few years it's not Trump's failure to be convicted. It's not the pardons. The final affront, I think, is that we still don't know. I can't think of a parallel in American history. What happened, and in large part because of all the hijinks and kind of circus behavior of Team Trump. A bipartisan vote to impeach for inciting the riot. And 57% of the U.S. Senate voted to convict him. So obviously not enough to meet the constitutional standard but not exactly chopped liver either. Of course, but I'm just saying to echo Bill that having these holes in the historical account of even who did what is, I just think, intolerable for a democracy. All right, let's turn, I think it's related, the huge uh, continuing battles over voting rights. I think there's sort of a through line running from the January 6th insurrection and the persistence of the big lie to the wave of restrictive state ballot access laws, which are themselves premised on a, another lie, the myth of widespread voter fraud. So on the state legislative front, Texas Governor Abbott's now 
taking another shot at pushing through restrictions. Remember last time he tried in the state, Democrats were able to foil him by literally leaving town. Do you have a sense of his prospects this time and how bad is the law he's trying to push through? I don't know every single detail today, but clearly Texas and a number of other states are uh, trying to restrict access to the ballot box. And the rationale is um, a bologna sandwich. There wasn't a bunch of voter fraud. Most of what I've seen in terms of the scattered voting fraud is people trying to vote for Trump twice, and that wouldn't have made a difference anyhow. It's just basically not the issue, but it's being advanced as a rationale. The chilling thing is that the Supreme Court used that bogus argument as a basis for further undercutting the Voting Rights Act in the decision last week. Could I ask you to elaborate on that briefly? Basically, they rewrote Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, you know, a group that says they're just calling balls and strikes, essentially rewrote the statute and claimed that it was justified because you might be worried there was a state interest that there could be voter fraud, therefore the diminution of the vote of some did not matter. And they put in a formula that was stupid. For example, you couldn't use post office boxes. Well, that's a very big deal. Or you couldn't use somebody who was not in your immediate family to deliver the ballot. That means people on reservations aren't going to be able to vote because they are so far away from a post office, a ballot site, and that that's how it was okay because you you could be worried about something. It's just really a shame. We are now in the process of having extensive hearings. G.K. Butterfield, former Supreme Court judge in North Carolina, is chairing the election subcommittee in House administration. He had a series of hearings all over the United States. He's got a report that's over 2,500 pages of evidence, statistical evidence, and we are going to be rewriting the Voting Rights Act in a way that we hope, if the justices are honest with themselves, will tighten this up so that we can protect the rights of voters in this country, minority voters in particular. Yeah, and let me try to flesh that out a bit. So first, I really agree with you, Congresswoman, what happened in the Brnovich case is six members of the Supreme Court, the obvious six, basically credited in the abstract, said, well, states could be concerned about voter fraud and just completely closed their eyes to the facts of the matter, as you say, a bologna sandwich. And they were really in an Alice in Wonderland world that way. And the backdrop here is this did great damage to Section 2, which was the clause left standing after the Shelby County case eight years ago had gutted the more important Section 5, which established rules for a lot of states to have to get advance approval from Congress. When they did that, the Chief Justice actually said, maybe now Congress can come back with some legitimate reason, but we no longer think that the original reason in the big, bad old 60s when people were completely disenfranchising minorities holds anymore. Why do they do that national fact-finding? Hard to say, and it doesn't seem very judicial. But they did invite this response, and I think this would be the kind of thing that would be served up to them. So, A, I just wanted to flesh that out for listeners, but also ask, what are the prospects for 
a new Voting Rights Act, a refurbished one that uh, responds to their call, given the deep partisan divide now in the Congress and the Senate? Well, I, I hope not. It's worth remembering that the court in Shelby said there's no problem now, therefore we don't need this protection. As soon as the protections were eliminated, states that wanted to discriminate went wild. Without ever looking at it, it was the protections that actually were, were providing the relief. They overthrew the renewal that was overseen by Jim Sensenbrenner. Jim Sensenbrenner is not exactly a liberal. Republican from Wisconsin, yeah? I mean, I worked with Jim all the time. Very conservative man, but a very decent, honest man. And he put the renewal together and it passed. I think it got 96 votes in the U.S. Senate. Those are days that we can look back to where people just work together on the merits. My faith that will always happen is somewhat shaken by the recent legislative efforts, but I think we have to proceed along that line. We've had several senators say that they don't like H.R. 1, but they'd like H.R. 4. Let's see. Let's put together something that is rational, defensible, supported by the evidence, and then let's try and get that enacted into law. And I do just want to underscore that the court seems ready to second guess those efforts, but yet not second guess state representations that they care about fraud. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. And we're really fortunate to welcome to do it, Alyssa Milano, an actor, designer, producer, philanthropist, and humanitarian. As an actor, she's best known for her roles in Who's the Boss, Melrose Place, Charmed, My Name is Earl, and Insatiable. Described by Forbes as the, quote, Democratic it influencer of 2020, close quote, she's also a fierce political activist from Capitol Hill to the polls, and she was heavily involved with the Time's Up movement. Alyssa will explain to us today the current state of play with the Equal Rights Amendment and the prospect for future passage. What is the Equal Rights Amendment and what is required to make it part of the Constitution. The Equal Rights Amendment, or the ERA, is a proposed amendment to the U.S. Constitution first introduced in 1923 that would explicitly guarantee equal rights for all Americans regardless of sex, patterned on the language of the 14th and 19th Amendments. The current ERA provides that equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on the account of sex. The Constitution itself provides the process for the constitutional amendment. There are different routes, but the pertinent one here is that two-thirds of each House of Congress must vote for it. Then the amendment must be ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the states. That's 38 out of 50. The current ERA, drafted in 1943, was not approved by the Senate until March 1972. In January 2020, 48 years after the ratification phase began, Virginia became the 38th state to ratify the amendment. So why isn't the ERA yet part of the Constitution? 
two reasons. First, when Congress initially proposed the ERA, it gave states until 1979 to ratify and then extended that deadline to 1982. But by 1982, the ERA was still three states short of 38. There's no question that Virginia's 2020 ratification is well outside Congress's 1982 deadline. But many argue that Congress could reopen its ratification window as the Constitution imposes no ratification deadline and Congress already extended its own deadline once. Second, Five states, Nebraska, Tennessee, Idaho, Kentucky, and South Dakota, rescinded their early ERA ratifications under socially conservative legislatures. It is not clear, however, that a state may validly rescind a previous ratification. History suggests it's improper. But the Supreme Court has declined to weigh in on the issue, declaring it a political question for Congress and executive to work out. In other words, the missed deadline and attempted rescissions may not be legally fatal. But the only practical way to revive the path to enactment of the ERA is for Congress to act and accept the ratifications of the three states whose acceptance came after the deadline it originally set. That's never happened before. So it's not clear what Congress would need to do exactly. There is legislation pending in Congress to remove the time limit on the ratification process, which would, in theory, achieve the golden 38 number. But whether that would work might be a question that would wind up in the courts. For Talking Feds, I'm Melissa Milano. Thank you very much for that explanation, Alyssa Milano. Alyssa's Sorry, Not Sorry podcast tackles social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting the work of activists making remarkable progress around the country. In addition to the podcast, Alyssa has a book coming out October 26th, also titled Sorry, Not Sorry. It's a book of essays about her life, career, and activism, and is currently available for pre-order. I'd like to spend some time talking suppression of speech by private companies like Facebook, but rather than trash the lawsuit, I want to talk about the possibility that it may be part of a social and cultural shift to seriously consider trimming the wings of the big tech companies. There's an op-ed today in the Washington Post by Fred Hyatt, the editorial page editor, and he, of course, says the suit is a non-starter, but says most people understand that these are private companies, but also that in today's America, if those three, Facebook, Google, and Twitter, are silencing you, you are being excluded in a serious way from the public square. I mean, that was kind of the theme of the First Amendment high school speech because she had just said something that kids do all the time now. That's where they communicate. So the question is, are we in a cultural, a moment of cultural shift in which there's going to be serious consideration to rein in big tech? The argument by conservatives that they're being silenced on big tech has shown to be very much overblown, particularly when we see the lists of all of the top performing posts on Facebook, for example, every day, which are held primarily by conservative commentators like 
Ben Shapiro, Dan Bongino, The Daily Wire, et cetera. These are often the top performing posts and outlets on Facebook. And if anything, I think that what 2016 taught us is that these platforms have been giving far too much reign to bad actors who peddle disinformation. And that's really a big reason why so much of the Russian uh, disinformation campaigns were allowed to flourish on these platforms. And while there has been an attempt by the companies to crack down more on disinformation, particularly on Twitter, I think that if we just look at the evidence, which is the fact that a lot of these platforms still have huge audiences, a lot of these Facebook groups that peddle disinformation and misinformation about vaccines, for example, are still very much active on Facebook. And no matter how much they try to do away with them, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. They just keep popping up. And so I think that this is the argument that there is a silencing going on of a particular segment or a particular of the population or particular political party just doesn't really add up when you look at which players are being allowed to have free reign on these platforms and and peddle this stuff. I think that this has definitely become a culture war thing. This has become more ideological than anything else for many on the right who kind of want to make it into a David and Goliath type situation where, you know, the little guys are trying to stand up to the tech giants who are trying to censor them. But again, if you just look at the massive audiences that these outlets and these people have on these platforms, the argument just crumbles. So I really agree. If anything, it's been a boon to conservative voices. I think Paul Barrett at the Stern Center has done an empirical analysis that blows the point out of the water. But just taking a step back, you know, it seems there's an alliance, an embryonic alliance between the sort of libertarian right, for whatever reason, whatever factual conceptions they hold or don't, and maybe the pro-privacy or suspicious of big business left that is coalescing around the notion that this maybe made sense early on when the internet was starting up, but at this point, they're a little like what? I don't know, common carriers. There's so much power there that some kind of regulation has to follow. Something is likely to happen, but the interesting thing is that the Republicans in the House are saying something completely different than the Democrats yeah. in the House. The Republicans are saying they're censoring us, we need to go after them because they're censoring us. And the Democrats are saying, you're not censoring these voices enough. You're allowing misinformation and violence, and we want more regulation. It's completely different motivations. And the answer or the regulation would be completely different. So I do think there is, the president just today outlined a whole series of measures on competition that I think Mm -hmm. just looking at them look very sound to me. Some of them cover the tech sector and that we should take a much more vigorous look at mergers and also use of data. I think that's absolutely right to say that these companies should escape regulations simply false. The other thing to keep in mind, we talk about Twitter. Now you've got people are on TikTok, people are on Twitch. So to some extent, you're just a click away from your competition. That continues to be true in the tech sector. Sorry to, to Mr. Crystal for jumping on your line. No, no, no. I, I agree with what you just said. But I think I, mean, I don't know, is it good or bad? I, I, they look, there are about five different issues here, which are really quite distinct. Yeah. There's a privacy issue, there's a competition slash antitrust kind of 
issue. There's a misinformation and disinformation issue, which Sasha spoke about. There's an algorithm issue, an extremism and radicalization issue, which I think could suitably be regulated, just as we regulate the, you know, people have a right to drive automobiles if they have driver's license. Give me one word on the algorithm issue. I just want to make sure people understand that one. Well, that, I mean, the way in which Facebook in particular, I think is a particular problem here, much more than Google or Twitter, but the way in which Facebook decides what you'll see has something to do with what you've seen before and what you're most engaged by and what you forward most to to other people. And that tends to therefore have a sort of self-fulfilling character in terms of stuff that fits into your prejudices and maybe even makes you more intensely care about whatever you care about. So it has a certain kind of radicalizing effect on the discourse in general, which we have a right to care about as a country. And there's no, I don't think, absolute First Amendment right that Facebook can't be either urged or maybe required to adjust for algorithms or make them public at least, or let others see what they are or let you choose to opt in or opt out. So there are many, there are, I don't know, a bunch, I don't even know much about this. So I'm sure even I've been able to think of five (laughs) distinct issues and I'm sure there are another five. So if we could have a serious debate about any of these, that would be a nice thing. But the degree of demagoguery and stupidity, honestly, and and I totally agree with the Congresswoman about this on the Section 230 stuff, which is literally nuts. The degree of especially Republican and conservative demagoguery and then a little bit, I'd say, on the left in terms of, you know, is it breaking up Facebook into three Facebooks? It's going to make any difference, honestly, really. What does that do? You know, it is, you know. so there's a little bit of the big tech's gone from being a something that we all look up to to a punching bag. And a, yeah. it's a little healthier to have some skepticism. And maybe there's the potential, Harry, as you're suggesting, for people to come together across the aisle on some of this. But I've got to say, so far, the debate has been pretty stupid, honestly, and yeah. not very constructive. So I worry about that. And it's really it, big tech for all that everyone likes to beat it up. Like, it is not a trivial thing. It's a kind of an achievement of the United States that these five largest, I believe the five largest biggest cap companies now in the world are American yeah. companies. That's good. It gives us all kinds of advantages. It gives us some chances to go move forward in all kinds of ways in our competition with other countries and non-democratic and politically. countries. Yeah. And politically. I mean, the idea that we should be horrified, that we're like embarrassed that Google and Facebook and Apple are American companies and that they're dominating. It's a huge opportunity for us. Now they have to be shaped in certain ways and they can, they've done some damage, unfortunately, to our democracy. So but the, the level of debate, especially on the right and a little bit on the left, I got to say, is is so low compared to what's really demanded here, which is a really serious bunch of public policy choices and debates comparable to the ones we had in, I don't know, the 19. 19- tens or something like that on antitrust and or the 1930s on with the new deal or, or with the broadcast companies in fact that's where yeah. i wanted to end although i did want to note that it does feel as if the knives are out for facebook in particular all the stories suggesting not everything is well between mark zuckerberg and sheryl sandberg they are the company that everyone loves to hate i just want to plug yeah. privacy Because that is an opportunity we might get across the board. Anna Eshoo and I did the biggest privacy bill I think ever introduced. And basically, it's not opt-in, opt-out. You wouldn't let someone opt into usury, right? It's like, what can you allow to be collected and used? And if you really control that to, you can only get what you need for that transaction and keep it only for the length of that transaction, much of these problems will be dealt with. You've anticipated my last question because I wasn't wanted to analogize to the time when there were only a few TV networks and they so dominated public discourse that the fairness doctrine came to be because it just seemed that you couldn't let them make all the decisions. So I was wondering your thoughts about is it possible to create a kind of approach like that 
today. And you've mentioned actually two co- possible cornerstones, Congresswoman, this notion of some knowledge, which is a, you know, a potential liability, but only where the companies have real reason to think that there's something, say, defamatory or otherwise coming down the pike. And then also this idea about privacy. Is anyone hearing basic kinds of proposals or have your own ideas about the kinds of proposals that might be intelligently debated, something like a fairness doctrine, for example? Yes, you Lofgren privacy bill. I'll tell you, 50% or better of what we've discussed today would be resolved by that bill. Are Republicans open to it? The libertarians may not be because it's big government that is going to be regulating. But there is a bipartisan group that I'm part of fighting surveillance by the government, NSA, and some of the problematic things. I've been arguing this is just part of that. Americans have to own their own data, and it cannot be used in ways that are detrimental not only to them, but to American society. Biden, during the campaign, he did express his support, actually, for repealing Section 230. But again, this is an issue that makes no sense because it would actually place more responsibility on the companies themselves to monitor the speech of the people that use these platforms. They could be held liable for the speech on these platforms if it was. So I think this is just another issue that is being set up as a false dichotomy between what we're actually seeing in real life about what these tech platforms are doing and what certain actors, particularly on the right, are trying to set up as a culture war issue. That's such an important point Natasha just made. And the culture war stuff isn't just bad for the country because it gets everyone worked up and because it, you know, is for a lot of it is false and based on lies and so forth. It's bad because of the, if you want to use a, a term, the opportunity cost, which is it, we then have a culture war fight about the internet for six months or the or big tech for six months instead of actually having a debate about the Lofgren uh, issue bill or whatever other things could be done. And I'm personally pretty agnostic about what exactly should be done in some of these areas. I really don't have a strong view and I would love to hear more and have intelligent congressional hearings and have real debates and public think tanks. Instead, everyone's Florida and Texas. Those are two pretty big states are passing ridiculous legislation, right? That's going to be thrown out already because Florida's already been thrown out, right, in court, in federal court. And that got everyone preoccupied about what we should be doing about the internet. So I think it it is a good case study of how the culture war stuff really damages the country's ability to have a serious debate about a whole bunch of issues, you know, perfectly appropriate to have an oversight hearing about what the education in the military. Not appropriate to have a hearing if it's just a chance for a bunch of congressmen or senators to go around you know, parading their latest culture war trophy, which is apparently critical race theory, and then have really degrade the whole level of discussion when you have the chairman of Joint Chiefs, the Joint Chiefs testifying before Congress. So culture war is a very bad thing, honestly. It's so true. And I think that big tech aggravates it in unique and really pernicious ways. At least everyone talks about the silo problem that individuals all turn to their preferred cable station. But at least they can change the channel. So many of us, and I'll count myself and the left on this as well, when they use big tech, they turn to the same old, their own choirs and amen choruses. And without even being aware of it, we're finding this out from all the January 6th defendants, just their this own point of view is more and more and more and more entrenched. And there's no cross silo, if you will, communication. All right. Huge problem. All the time we have for today to try to attack it, but not going away. It's time now. We have just a minute left for our five words or fewer feature. Today's question comes from Amber Marcus Blank, who asks, would you 
be willing to ride in a driverless car today? Uh, let's see. Only <laughs> under 10 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> it depends who the driver is. <laughs> this shows how unfit I am to navigate the new world we're living in. You know, that's my first thought. <laughs> yeah. Natasha. Not yet too many problems. And I'm going with, yep, safer than I am. That's all we've got time for today. Thank you very much to Natasha, Bill, and Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, Please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Rebecca Lopatin, and Matt McArdle. Our editor is Justin Wright. David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Abby Meyer. Our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Thanks very much to Alyssa Milano for explaining the status and prospects of the proposed Equal Rights Amendment to the Federal Constitution. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.